Welcome to the podcast. Our mission is for every man, woman and child to be empowered with the knowledge of how to be happy. The goal of this show is to introduce you to the people and ideas that will help you live truly fulfilling lives. Today I'm speaking with Laura Juan. Many of us sit back quietly hoping that our hard work and effort will speak for itself only to be left frustrated, discouraged or we try to force ourselves into the mold of someone that we think of as successful. But in doing so we stifle the creativity and charm that make us unique and memorable. Laura is a professor at Harvard Business School who has spent her academic career studying interpersonal relationships and implicit bias in entrepreneurship and in the workplace. Her research has been featured in the Financial Times, the Wall Street Journal, USA Today, Forbes and Nature, and she's been named one of the 40 best business school professors under the age of 40. And she's the author of Edge, Turning Adversity into Advantage. Laura, thank you for being here. It's a pleasure. When writing this book... I know that you had in your head, you had the picture of those people who had been knocked down time and time again, thinking that their hard work should just be able to speak for itself. But then they realize that often there's other forces at play. Is, is that the case? Yeah, I mean, you know, it's one of those things where like, at least when I was a child, I feel like my parents were, you know, it was constantly like, work hard, work hard, work hard. And this is what a lot of parents teach their kids, right? That if you just work hard, that you'll be successful. And as we sort of grow up, we get the same message, right? You see people who are at the top of their game, people who are super successful, you know, CEOs of companies and gold medalists and Olympic Olympians and world record holders. And you see them and when they're getting interviewed and people ask them like, what's the secret to your success? One of the main things they all mention, one of the things that is, is in common between all of these people is hard work, right? They talk about hard work and grit and just like putting in all of that effort. And, you know, I think the thing is that I would never say that hard work and grit are not critical because they are absolutely critical. But we also know deep down that those that, that hard work and grit are not necessarily like hard work and grit alone are not enough that a lot of times we are left frustrated because we do put in that hard work and we put in that effort and then the success and outcomes go to someone else. And so, you know, what most of my research has been about is the fact that we know that there is this myth of meritocracy and that there's disadvantages and disparities. And it's because hard work alone is not enough because a lot of times success and outcomes are determined by people's perceptions and stereotypes and attributions that they're making about you. And so what I study is really around how do we take those perceptions and those stereotypes and flip them in our favor so that our hard work actually does work harder for us. You're in the business and the startup world and you said this in 2017. So I don't know, the numbers may have changed like a tiny bit, but even though they own, I think, 38% of the businesses in the US, female entrepreneurs only receive 2% of the venture financing. That's right. And it actually hasn't gotten better. So, it hasn't gotten any no, better it hasn't, since then. it hasn't. So those statistics have held. Yeah, absolutely. What's crazy is that, like, so not only like a 98% going to male entrepreneurs, the, the next bit, which I found just so interesting, not only are men more likely to get funded than women, 
attractive men are more likely to get funded still. We think that things like attractiveness should make no difference to a decision of should I fund this company or not. But well, the funny like that- thing is, well, the funny thing is, we like we sort of knew. So, so like my co-authors and I, we knew that there was this disparity between male and female entrepreneurs, and so we were actually like, okay, well, what are some factors that can level the playing field, right? Like, you know, the 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 lay perception is that women spend a lot more time on their appearance and. And so we're like, okay, well, maybe it's that women who spend more time on their appearance and look like really are very attractive women. Maybe they'd actually get a boost. Like maybe we can, maybe there's, there's some sort of leveling the playing field here and there's something that's unfair around attractiveness. Well, in fact, we found that there actually was no difference between attractive and unattractive women at all. That that men were getting funded more than women, um, regardless of how attractive those women were. But then we found this extra sort of thing that like we was so, sort of unexpected, which is that actually it's not that attractiveness doesn't matter at all. That men who are attractive get this extra boost. So then we were like, oh damn, like what do we do from here, right? Because we were trying to figure out ways in which we could have, you know, what are the factors that allow women to sort of moderate these negative effects that they're seeing? Um, but that was not one of them. <laughs> and if you're having a heart attack, if you get a doctor who's the same gender as you, you're more likely to survive. Why? Yeah. So, you know, with with that area of my research, what we were trying to do is I had, so, I mean, I would say like 80 to 90% of my research looks at the entrepreneurship and the startup context, right? Which is a context there. There's like extreme uncertainty. There's a lot of ambiguity. And so what I was trying to do was take a context where there should be no difference at all, right? Like, so, so this was like a matter of there, there should be no difference in terms of who lives or dies, right? If you're an emergency room physician and someone is having a heart attack, there should be no difference if you're controlling for, you know, prior conditions and how severe it is and all those sort of things based solely on someone's gender, whether you're male or female. You should be equally likely to survive a heart attack based on the treatment that you're provided. Right. So so we were actually starting with that baseline. Like, OK, fine. Like we know that there's all of these differences and this inequality in the startup world. But okay, let's start from an environment where like men and women should be equally likely to survive a heart attack. Again, we're controlling for everything. Right. We're controlling for like the education of the physician, the hospital that it's in, um, prior conditions of the patient, time, you know, all of these sort of things that we're controlling for. So it's not differences in terms of the the patient. The the only difference was really gender. And what we found was that for, for some reason, women who are treated by female physicians are less likely to die than otherwise. Right. And so it was sort of astounding to us that we were we were discovering that like these subtle signals and cues were even operating in a in a context where, you know, where 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 they these physicians take the Hippocratic oath. Right. They are there to save other. And so there's like these underlying implicit things where it's not purposeful, but there are definitely differences in terms of, of what's happening, even in an emergency room situation, when people are coming in for, for heart attacks. 
were we able to identify those exact things so we can kind of reverse engineer it and weed them out? Or is it still just we don't know there's things happening, but we can't pinpoint it? Or, or yeah, do we know I mean, why? That's what we're trying to do a lot more of is trying to pinpoint like why this is. Because, you know, what our research suggests is that some of it is due to communication, right? Cues around communication. What, um, how physicians communicate with their patients, how they perceive perhaps like pain thresholds, how they perceive like prior medication that's being taken, right? So things that are much more perceptual in nature. And so that's where I've kind of really, in the last couple of years, my research has really gone to like, how do we start to tease apart what these factors are? Like, what is it? What, what are these? If we know that there's subtle nuances and there's these implicit cues, what can we do about these implicit cues to figure out what's actually going on? So we're working on it, but it's tough because, you know, especially when it comes to, to, to research, when you're, when you're, when you're talking about these sorts of findings, it takes a very long time because you want to make sure that you're really capturing a real effect, right? You do want to control for every single thing. You want to make sure you're controlling for education of the physician and who else is involved because you want to make, you, you, you don't want to be mistakenly saying that it's about gender when it's really about something else. Um, and sure. so in order to make these sort of provocative claims, uh, it just takes a long time to really disentangle the exact mechanism behind what's happening so you, you see an effect and often i guess a mistake that people make is that we see a correlation between one thing and another and then we jump on thinking it's cause and effect well actually it's just a correlation so it'd almost be maybe more harm than sure. good if you suddenly see a correlation and you're like change the policies this is the new way and actually it's a red herring and unfortunately we see that a lot more right we see people kind of jumping to conclusions and coming and coming to conclusions from this place of you know, perhaps they don't have, they say it authoritatively. And so we believe it and it sort of makes sense, but we really haven't done the underlying work to, to, to figure out what's going on. And so it, it's even more damaging. Um, so, so mm. as I kind of mentioned, that's why we're, we're really trying to understand the fact that these are, these are really nuanced factors. And so when I talk about the, the fact that success and outcomes and outcomes, everything from, you know, who gets hired and who gets raises and who gets promotions to who gets funding for their ventures to who survives a heart attack, all of these things have very subtle differences where it can go in either direction based on how you how you redirect um, a signal or a cue or or how you perceive someone or perceive something that's happening. And so we do need to be really, really careful when we jump to kind of these these sort of conclusions. If someone's hearing this and they're kind of thinking, OK, so all of these things like there are so many biases, stereotypes, obstacles blocking our success blocking us thriving that in itself seems like quite a, a depressing message but actually your book is hugely empowering because it's about taking these things but then turning around and actually owning it and i know you talk about a bunch of different ones but one that i found really interesting is delighting like, could you maybe just expand on delighting maybe give some examples or some stories of what you mean by yeah that? i mean i think um i think what you're saying there which is sort of interesting is like a lot of times it does sound really depressing right we've just now talked about so many different depressing findings which is so counter to what i talk about when i when i when i speak about delight and what that means and how it can be used to counteract some of these things because what happens is that when we think about these sort of findings, a lot of times the solutions that we propose are 
system level or structural solutions, right? So, so many of the things that the, the solutions that are out there are things like, okay, well, if there's, if there's inequality in hiring, hiring practices, right? Well, let's have algorithms to help us do hiring. Or if there's inequalities in terms of who is promoted and who gets to be in, a, in executive level positions, well, let's try and have more diversity and inclusion in these executive level positions and, and more diversity in terms of gender and race and ethnicity in terms of mentors and people who are there, right? And the thing is, though, that people from the inside it's, it's still sort of frustrating because it's like the solution is for you to wait until those algorithms get implemented or wait until the top management team is more diverse and wait until. Right. And so it's like we're trying to fix things. But, yeah, we've been talking about inequality and this myth of meritocracy for a really long time. Right. Decades. And sometimes it's changed, but it's changed far too slowly or it has unintended consequences. And so what my work has been what, what I've really been studying these last couple of years is how do we as individuals individuals, empower ourselves, even within an imperfect system, so that we're not just waiting around for things to change. And so that delight piece speaks directly to that. It speaks to this fact that Others are not always, we're not going to have a lot of doors open to us, right? Others are either, maybe we don't belong to the right network, so we don't look the right way, or we don't speak the right way. And so the opportunities are not always going to be available to us. And so instead of waiting around for it to, to allow us in, um, when we're able to delight our counterpart, that's the equivalent of cracking that door open a little bit. So that we can have that opportunity to show them how we enrich and provide value and get a seat at the table. And so, um, you know, I, I talk about this, this, what it means to hone your ability to see how others perceive you. And when you're able to see how others perceive you, that's when you're able to engage with people in a deeper, richer more productive fashion. Um, and, and that's how you really take sort of the reins and you, you, you empower yourself to be able to create an advantage for yourself or even create an edge for yourself in any sort of circumstance that, that you're going to be in. Now, delight is sort of one of those words. It's sort of hard to like bottle up and explain, but sometimes I try and explain it. Like, you know, I have people or I remind people, like, think about the very first time that you rode in an Uber, right? Like forget all the other stuff around Uber, like the, you know, management issues and like sexual harassment, like forget all that just for a second. And just think about the very first time you were in an Uber, right? It was this like instantaneous feeling of like, whoa, like this is really, what is going on, right? It was like sort of frightening in a way because you're in a stranger's car and like this person just knows where they're going to take you. But it was also sort of like, it made you stop and, and take notice because you're like, this is really different. This is really sort of interesting. It's sort of delightful in the sense that this person's going to take me to where I need to go. I don't need to pay, right? Because it's sort of an automatic thing. I don't need to give them directions or an address. Um, and so it it causes this, this like feeling of surprise. And, and, and when we're able to engender that same feeling from someone else, 
it gives that's cracking the door open a little where they want to learn just a little bit more or they're they're curious in a little bit of a different way or they want to ask a question and that actually starts to break down these barriers and break down these perceptions and allows us to then really engage in a different way and so that's sort of one of the ways that i i talk about delight and what it means but um but to gain an edge like delight is just sort of one piece of of actually gaining this advantage or edge for yourself it almost sounds like it's like something strategic right like overly strategic you're trying to manage impressions and you're trying to figure out what that other person wants it's actually the opposite of that it's not that you're sort of thinking and you're planning and you're trying to to create, right? So a lot of times that like, we see someone and they're like kissing up to the boss or something, right? And we see that and we're like, oh, like, I don't want to do that. Like that just feels like gross or something, right? But this is the opposite of that. What you're really trying to do is you're trying to show people who you authentically are. And so when I, when I speak about gaining an edge, the E-D-G-E actually stands for the, the components of the framework that I've developed through my research. So even though the title of the book is Edge and it's about how to gain an edge, it actually stands for this framework that I found through my research and developed through my research where the, the, there's multiple parts that feed in and um, that, that, that sort of parallel with, with the delight piece. So the E stands for enrich. And it's about how you enrich and provide value in any sort of context, right? So, so the first piece of it is really knowing who you are. What are your superpowers? What are your strengths? What are the things that you're really good at? What are your underestimated strengths? What do people see as weaknesses? So really understanding like how you enrich and provide value. The D stands for delight, which we've talked a little bit about. But what it kind of says is that like when you know what your basic goods are, when you know what your superpowers are, you're really just trying to show people what who you are. This is very much about like self-awareness and authenticity, but in a very targeted way, not just internal, but in this interactional way. So the delight is not that you're actively trying to delight them. You're trying to do things in a really... Maybe you are being surprising and, and counterintuitive, but you're doing it very much in a way that allows you to guide. And that's what the G stands for. The G stands for guiding, which is that even when people meet you and you are in, engaging with them, they're immediately trying to make attributions about you, about who you are and where you've been and how much potential you have. And so the more we can actively guide and redirect those perceptions to who we authentically are, the more we're going to be able to delight them and then in turn be able to enrich and show the value we provide. And then the final E stands for effort and hard work. And effort and hard work come last in this framework, right? We often think it comes first, that if you put in the hard work, it'll speak for itself. But in fact, effort and hard work come last because when you know how you enrich and delight and guide, that's in fact when your hard work and effort work harder for you. So each each of these is a whole section in my book. And I talk lots about the sort of research behind it and how it how it allows you to. Um, you know, understand this perspective. It's not a recipe. Like, it's not like, okay, step one, you do this. Step two, you do this. But it's more sort of a, a way of, of understanding who you are and the value you provide. So that when you do have the door slammed in your face or when you have felt like you're just sort of pulling the same levers over and over and over again and not seeing that progress, that you have a way of really empowering yourself to 
to do those things that you know and achieve those things that you can actually achieve. You sometimes ask your students to think about a time when somebody wronged them or a situation that has them feeling angry. Why do you do that? You know, so it's funny because you you said before that there's like this is like a really positive, uplifting um, sort of thing. But in fact, like my whole last chapter, even even uh, my my editors and publishers of were like, wow, this is sort of like a really negative last chapter to end on. And it's because I think I, I also wanted to be very realistic. Like one of the emotions that really drives a lot. I mean, there's there's we all have this bitterness and to some extent this jaded feeling that we have towards life. And so one of the exercises I do with my students is I I tell them, okay, think about a time when you've been wronged, right? Or think about a time when someone has stabbed you in the back and it still bothers you. It still feels like, you know, that you, that you were so wronged. It feels like an open wound and we all have those experiences. And so what's, what, what I talk about is the importance of asking yourself this question, is this going to make me better or bitter? Right. And 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 a lot of times when we when we have those sort of experience, like every single one of my students within 30 seconds can think of at least one situation that they still feel angry about or bitter about. And sometimes they date back to like decades ago. Right. So we hold on to these sort of things. And so we talk a lot about sort of these these wounds and how does it's always going to be there. But how do we kind of turn it into scar tissue that's protective rather than this open wound so that it makes us better and not bitter? And that's like an important piece of 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 knowing also who you are and your strengths and how you enrich and your your past and your trajectories and all of these different pieces that that go into that go into really finding and gaining and creating your edge. What are your thoughts on a person's perception becomes their reality. So say, for example, if you think of business as war, then your reality will be that probably business is war. If I think of men can't be trusted, women can't be trusted, whatever, then that's I'll see that everywhere in all my interactions. Yeah, I mean, I have a chapter in my book where I basically insult everyone, right? Like I literally insult everyone. And the reason I do this is because I talk about how 80% of it is about these stereotypes, right? These perceptions. So I talk about like, here are the stereotypes we have about women. Here are the stereotypes we have about, um, you know, people who are black. Here's the stereotypes we have about people who are bankers. Here's the stereotypes we have about people who are black and women and bankers, right? And like, and it goes, and I basically insult everyone by talking about the stereotypes that exist based on gender and race and ethnicity and class and religion and sexual orientation and whether you have a technical background or not or what industries you work on, everything. And, but then I talk about how that is 80%. But yet there's this really critical 20 percent that is, is again, really based on nuance. And the 20 percent shapes how we interpret and how we make sense of that 80 percent. So I think that's what you were talking about a little bit with like these perceptions versus reality. And so the 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 key here is that if if rewards and success and outcomes were determined purely based on quantitative, logical, rational things, right? Then it's it's a then then we would have no need for um, sort of understanding biases and perceptions and stereotypes. But 
the 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 piece that's really interesting is that just like just as we interpret people using signals and cues and stereotypes it's sort of the poison but it's also the antidote right because success and outcomes are often determined by these implicit subjective things it also gives us the power to shape those perceptions so that we can create situations and success and outcomes that works in our favor if it was just purely based on quantitative metrics, we wouldn't have the opportunity to be able to shape things in our favor. It would be purely just based on the numbers. And so even though it does create this unfairness, it also creates this opportunity for us to take things in our own hands, empower ourselves, and again, create this advantage or create this edge for ourselves. So the more that we can understand this 20% and this nuance, the more we're able to use this as our own antidote antidote to the, the, the poison and to these negative sort of effects. When you, when you just said about the stereotypes surrounding bankers, I heard bakers and I was thinking, what are the baker stereotypes in terms of people who bake breads? <laughs> I was kind of thinking I've somehow got through like my entire life without understanding these Baker stereotypes. <laughs> I know you've been asked this before, but like, where do you feel that influence becomes manipulation? This sort of advice around like be yourself, right? It just is, it's just not very, it's not valuable advice, even though we hear it all the time because there's so many different versions of ourselves. We don't know what that actually means, right? Like who we are with our mother is really different from who we are with our best friend. And that's really different from who we are with our boss or our, you know, it, it, like we have very different selves based on, on who we are. And I always describe it as like thinking of ourselves as a diamond, right? Each individual is a diamond. And if you think about a diamond, it has every single solitary diamond has certain flaws, or different angles and cuts and facets and different ways it's going to shine differently based on the angle at which you look at it or the environmental conditions or how much sunlight there is, right? So whenever we're interacting with someone, all we're trying to do is show that angle of our diamond that's going to shine the brightest, right? We're still the same diamond with the same flaws and the cuts and facets. But if we always think about it as like showing that angle of our diamond, that's going to shine the brightest, which is still that same diamond. That's how we actually have the deepest, richest interpersonal connection and interactions with someone else. So it's not really about like manipulation or influence. It's about really guiding and redirecting these, these, these interactions in such a way that you can engage with someone in an authentic way, but in a way that allows you to, to progress and enrich and provide value to one another. And I think that's sort of the way I think about it in terms of it's not manipulation. It's not even really managing impressions. It's really just you are who you are. And it's, you know, and we, we seem to get caught up so much in like be authentic, not recognizing that like authenticity is not like this unilateral thing. Authenticity has lots of shades of gray and lots of different ways in which you can be authentic based on who you're with. Everyone has something. However privileged that person is, they've got their chink in their armor. They've got something which they feel about. Would like a takeaway be that, you know, whatever our thing is, like, should we just like, should we own it? Like whatever we think of as a disadvantage or weakness, the more that we like own it and shine a spotlight on it to take control of, not to take control, but to help control the narrative around whatever that thing is. Well, I talk about everyone has something in the sense that like, you know, even 
people who may seem like the epitome of white cis male privilege, right? I mean, everyone has something, right? So Ronan Farrow, for example, was saying at one point how, you know, he seems like he leads this privileged life and that there's no sort of bias or stereotypes that others have about him. But, you know, when he walks into a room, one of the things that people are are, are saying about him is like, oh, like, he doesn't even deserve his Pulitzer Prize or he's only he's not even a good writer. He's only successful about because of who he is and 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 where he's been. And, you know, so I think we all have something and sometimes those are invisible things and sometimes those are very visible things. And so um, it goes it, it's really about honing your your intuition around what are those things for yourself and how do people perceive you based on those things? Laura, thank you so much for coming on the show today. How can people find out more about you, your work, your books? Yeah, great. So uh, my website is laurahuang.net. So you can find lots of resources there. And then I'm on social media. I'm on Twitter, Instagram, everything. Laura Huang, L-A, um, is my handle. Uh, awesome. And if you go to happiness.info, I'm going to link up all of Laura's links underneath this interview. Happiness.info.